Hello, welcome to Stuff About Energy Production. This podcast is brought to you by Kimray. You can visit us at kimray.com to see our full slate of training materials, quick tips, videos, and other resources. On today's episode, we talk with Breck Swigert, who's the Director of Product Management at Kimray, and our special guest is Dr. Chuck McCall. Dr. McCall is the Founding Engineering Program Director at Oklahoma Baptist University. Before that, he spent over 20 years as a director of the John Zink Institute, focusing on internal combustion uh, industrial applications. Um, has a lot of degrees, a, a broad uh, experience in his educational background and work history. And so we get into a lot of uh, fun discussions in this episode, including uh, how he's seen the industry change in his 30 years uh, within it. Uh, as well as advice he has for young engineers who are looking to uh, gain experience and get into uh, energy or other engineering jobs, Uh, why he loves engineering, and some of the practical things that he's trying to teach his students and equip them with so that once they get out into the working world, they are ready for it. All right, let's get into it. So my first question is, why, why so many degrees? Well, I love to learn, and the more I learn, the more I realize that I don't know as much as I'd like to know. So, uh, and I'm not disciplined enough to learn a lot of these things on my own. So I need a goal and a degree to make me do what I want to do. But, you know, if I'm paying for it, then I'm going to do it. What an answer. No, that's, that's awesome. Uh, we'll try to keep up with you. I apologize for me and Breck. Um, we got through sixth grade, took us a couple times. So, um, how about your background? We'll start there, Chuck. So where'd you grow up? Uh, hobbies growing up, how you ended up in the energy industry? So I'm originally from Philadelphia, spent most of my life there, a big Eagles fan. My right. dad had season tickets, so he used to go to a lot of games right. and worked as a mechanical engineer for a company in Allentown, Pennsylvania for quite a while, Fortune 200 Chemical Company, and got a, kind of got a call out of the blue from a headhunter. I was not looking for a job at the time, but I knew the person that was hiring the position, and the recruiter said that I would interview with a billionaire. And I had never spoken to a billionaire before, honestly didn't know who he was, but I thought, yeah, that doesn't hurt to do that. Yeah. And my wife's first reaction was, why did you take that interview? We don't want to move to Oklahoma. That was never in the plan. <laughs> and of course, being uh, from the East Coast, our view of Oklahoma was what's in the movie Oklahoma. Everybody's riding horses and cowboy hats and cowboy boots and red dirt and yes, everything sir. else. And we moved here a little over 25 years ago and love it. Uh, my wife will not move back, even though... Basically, all of our family uh, pretty much is still back east. Yeah. So uh, took a job with Coke Industries. Coke is the second largest privately held company in the United States. My specialty in industry is industrial combustion. So when I meet somebody for the first time, I tell them I was a paid pyromaniac. What better job could you have than that, That's right? That's terrific. And then I retired in November to take this job. And really, one of the drivers for me was I've taught as an adjunct for a long time and felt like students really weren't as well prepared when they graduate as they could be. So one of my jobs in industry was hiring new graduates, and most of the courses that I taught as an adjunct were junior and senior level. So I saw students about ready to graduate, and then after they graduated, and again, took them a few more years before they started to become productive. So that was one of the drivers, and, and I can go into more detail if, if, if that's of interest. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a great path to go down. Um, before that, maybe, just because – so the internal combustion, um, what all industries, I guess, did you work in? Tell us about your, your John, uh, John Zink experience. So most of my 
experience at John Zink was working on products used in the oil and gas industry, predominantly in refineries, burners and flares. And our job was to try to reduce pollution emissions. So over the time that I was there, uh, pollution emissions were reduced by, in some cases, up to 90%. Now, of course, I wasn't the only one working on it, but pretty rewarding to, to have that because, you know, our air's a lot cleaner than uh, it was when I was a kid. One question I was going to ask was, what are some of the ways you've seen the industry changing in, in your few decades, I guess, working working in it? And that seems like one of the, the major changes. Yeah, I would say two that jump right out to me is one is a lot less pollution than ever, and secondly, a whole lot more automation. Uh, it's amazing when you go into a refinery how few people are actually working there because there's so much equipment, so many instruments, so many sensors that are, you know, keeping track of things and really doing a better job than, than they were when they were run by a whole bunch of people. So, yeah, big changes there. Yeah, and you spoke to the refinery side. We we primarily play in the midstream and upstream uh, sector of the oil and gas, and and it's uh, it's it's making its way down there. If you look at our new product development over the last uh, three, four, five years, and what we have on the roadmap moving forward, it's it's primarily automation, uh, environmental compliance type products. They're getting our you know our products to to meet the most stringent level of regulations throughout there. So it's interesting to see kind of the the refinery side move all the way to the upstream side. Is that kind of you think that's the direction it went? Is like downstream started with kind of more of the automated yeah it seems it seems as if yeah it's a little bit more technologically advanced on the uh, refinery side than it is on the upstream and it's it's certainly um, catching steam uh, on on the upstream portion of the market yeah that makes me think of another change that i've noticed in a lot of the plants they used to have experts on everything in the plant so they had a valve guy a pump guy a compressor guy and most plants don't have that at least not at the plant level anymore they may have some in corporate, but they're relying a lot more on vendors like Kimray and like John Zink to help them, you know, spec equipment, maintain it, um, you know, use it op- more optimally. Hmm. Okay, so uh, your engineering program now at OBU, uh, tell us a little bit about about that program, um, why you wanted to be involved in it, uh, which you touched on a little bit already, uh, and just kind of the types of tracks you're looking to, to get students on. Sure. OBU started this process at least in 2012. We've gone back and looked and found some documentation on that, and it's been a long time coming. The two primary drivers have been it was the most requested degree that they did not already have by far, Hmm. and secondly, really strong demand from employers like Kim Ray need more engineers. So they were looking for universities to help them with increase the supply. So uh, that was the drivers for the school. A big driver for me was my frustration with how we do undergraduate engineering education in the United States. And let me say from the start, I'm not the first person by any stretch to say this. But a lot of issues related to that, primarily that most undergraduate programs are really theoretical, not very practical. And read an article not too long ago by one of the engineering societies that said, Engineering is the only professional degree taught primarily by professors that have never practiced in the field. So if you look at doctors and lawyers and nurses and accountants and pharmacists and dentists, they're taught by professors that have practiced and in some cases are still doing that, right? If if you're a a medical school professor, you're still a practicing doctor, not so in engineering. And what happens then is you get really heavy on the theory but very light on the practice, Um, My 
I guess the most prominent example I saw of that, I visited an employer a few months ago, and they had hired a new mechanical engineer who did not know what an Allen wrench is. Now, I don't know how you can be a mechanical engineer and not know what an Allen wrench is. If you've bought furniture online, you know what an Allen wrench is because they all come with that. And it was not the student's fault either or the the graduate's fault. I I don't even mean to blame them because apparently nobody ever told them. And that's because, again, the professors don't know what real engineers do. So I saw this as an opportunity to stop complaining about it and try to do something differently about it. And so what – my mission in life really is to try to make graduates that are better prepared to go into industry. I love it. I love it. So, uh, Breck, as, as, you know, product director, product management, what are some, you know, a valve manufacturer solutions provider, what are some ways that you interact with engineers, both internally and externally? Yeah. So engineers are oftentimes our go-to, whether it's a facilities engineer in the field to, understand the voice of the customer, so we, or VOC in short. So what we try to do is we try to not create a uh, solution and then look for the problem. We're looking for what is the biggest pain point. And oftentimes, that facilities engineer and or operator on the field are the ones that bring that information back to us, whether that's directly to the product management team or, or uh, indirectly through the sales team. So those are usually the the uh, the ones that are feeling the pain the most from whatever they're experiencing, whether it's with a Kimberly product or just the process in general. So they are definitely a go-to. Uh, we heavily also rely on them for field trials for new product development or major product improvement projects. Uh, going in with them and looking at it from an engineering level and not necessarily from somebody like myself that's just thinking, well, just tighten that up and loosen this and you should be good, but looking at it from a more uh, specific and educated mindset to say, "Hey, this is what we actually need, and this is what it needs to. This is how it needs to perform." Yeah, I've been in those rooms sometimes with operators, engineers, and those are always. There tend to be some fun. You, usually, they have a good conversation from my or a good relationship from my experiences with them. But there's very much a difference in background and opinion a lot of times uh, in those that I think often produces good results, but it, it can be uh, <laughs> tense sometimes. You know, Curtis, that's a great point. Sometimes the knock on new engineers when they graduate is their arrogance, especially when they're working with technicians. And I was lucky to find out early in my career that those technicians are worth their weight in gold. You need to listen to them. Yes, you bring some technology and technical skills that they may not have, but that practical experience is, is hard to get in school. So you you got to be careful about being too arrogant with them because they, they can help you or they can yeah. not help you. Yeah, absolutely. What what do you think uh, some things people, maybe uh, non-engineers, misunderstand about engineers? You know, it, it's kind of funny. Uh, I do have one daughter that's an engineer, and I have two other daughters that are not. And I would say my wife and two daughters still don't really know what I do. And I think that's somewhat part of the mystique of an engineer, which is why they're often held in pretty high regard. People know what doctors do. They know what lawyers do. They know what accounts do. I don't mean that they're easy, but I mean people know what they are. And with an engineer, well, they work on cars or they work on airplanes or things like that. But, you know, beyond that, they don't, the average person may not have a good understanding of what an engineer does unless they work with them. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what do you love or enjoy about engineering? You know, one of the also things that we're going to try to do differently is the mindset of a lot of students when they graduate is that every problem has one answer, the answer in the back of the book, the answer on the exam, but real problems often have multiple answers. Uh, As Breck pointed out, 
you know, when you're listening to the customer, a solution in one scenario may not be the same solution in another scenario. Sometimes it's cost, sometimes performance, maybe it's, uh, you know, the, the schedule. So it's, the problems are harder and that's what excites me about them. They are harder. And, and obviously that's why engineers get paid pretty good money because the problems are not so simple. And that's what, that's what excites me. Now the challenge sometimes is for an engineer is we're never done, right? You can always make it better. You can always spend more time and more money. And obviously projects don't have unlimited time and money. So sometimes the project manager, uh, the joke is they have to tear it out of the hand of the engineer because you know they, we gotta move on and start, and start doing stuff. Is that ring a bell with you, Rick? Yeah, so it's it's nice. Hey, Cameron, we're blessed with with a with a lot of engineers that work between quality, process, product, and design engineering. Most specifically, is who who my team works with, and it's nice to have that fall person. <laughs> so I say that jokingly, but really, it's you know we feel like okay, we have a pretty good general idea as to what the solution is, but always having that engineer to kind of you know take another step and and reevaluate you know kind of what what our solution is, or like you mentioned, solutions plural. Uh, it's really nice to have, and it's also we're we're blessed to have engineers with that practical mindset that you mentioned. Yeah, no, they're they're crucial to really. I mean, not just maybe they need better PR. I don't know, but man, engineers like have built the modern world, you know, in a lot of ways. And like at Kimray, where those guys do a lot, and I know product management does a lot to kind of protect them and protect their time because we know how valuable it is for them to be in the weeds, looking at things and, uh, and, and not really like working with customers so much, as much as they would love to do that. Um, well, the motto of OBU is we are future shapers. And that's what engineers do, right? If you think about our technology, our cars, our planes, our phones, our microwave ovens, none of that just sprung up out of the ground, right? It was all designed by engineers and almost always to make our quality of life better. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I know I've had recommended to me before a book about uh, the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, does that ring a bell for you guys? No? I'm not familiar with that How one. How about engineering books in general, Chuck? Anything that you would recommend? I mean, I'm mostly used to reading technical textbooks. books. Textbooks. Yeah, textbooks Something and easy. things that I've taught. So, I, I started one recently about, um, man, I'll have to find the title. I'll put it in the show notes. But it has to do with the battery and the invention of I guess invention of the battery, and he traces it all the way back. He's not a technical guy, he's a writer, but uh, traces it all the way back uh, to pre-modern times and through, like, the cartoon of Ben Franklin and the key and the kite and all that stuff. But uh, anyway, it's it's I'm about halfway through it, so I can't fully endorse it yet, but it's it's been pretty good so far. Well, my funny example is, you know, when I was a kid, we did not have microwave ovens. So we actually had to cook stuff on a stove, which took, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes to do, right? And now we have microwave ovens, and, you know, I'll stand in front of the ovens, the microwave and say, why is this taking so long? It's like two minutes. <laughs> so it's just funny how your perspective changes as technology keeps improving. Um, how about so for maybe a, a young Chuck Bacall um, in, in your decades since, if you could go back and, and give advice to, to young Chuck Bacall, other than ma- make sure and take that call from the billionaire, um, what sorts of advice would you give him? I would say to set some goals early on and then, you know, try to knock them out, but be flexible. You know, you may change them over time, but for, for me, at least if I have a target, it's a whole lot better that I'm just, you know, aimlessly walking back and forth. So that, that'd be a suggestion. I, I guess I would add to that is to do what you're passionate about. Uh, don't do your job just for the money. 
you spend a lot of time there. And statistically, last time I saw the numbers, about three-quarters of people are really not that happy about their jobs. So they basically dread Monday morning. And I honestly don't dread Monday morning. I sort of dread Friday afternoon only because I haven't gotten done as much as I hope to get done. Now, that's, that's not to say that I love everything I do. If anybody tells you they love every single thing they do at work, they're lying. Right? We all have stuff that we would prefer not to do. But if you don't basically like it in general, man, that makes for a long week and, and, and not a fun life. Yeah, yeah. So you talked earlier, Chuck, about um, trying to get more practical experience for your engineering students. What are, what's that vision or what are those kind of things that you're going to do to try and get them uh, to know what an Allen wrench is, for example? So a few things. One is to have labs and hands-on things in the classroom that expose them to that a second thing is to have folks come into the classroom that are engineers and talk to them about, here's what real engineers do, here's what we do. And probably the most important thing is internships before they graduate. Uh, more and more employers are almost requiring that a student does an internship before they hire them, preferably with them, but not necessarily. So, uh, you know, I think internships are great for both the employer and the employee. The employer basically gets an extended interview to see if they think this person's going to fit in with their team. And the student gets to see, do I like this industry? Do I like this company? Do I like this work within the company? You know, it's possible you may like the company. Maybe you don't like that particular job, but you see other ones that you do like. Uh, obviously, you get paid pretty well, and you can really see how the theory is applied in practice. Here's what real engineers do. You know, the theory doesn't always work in industry, right? Sometimes you, know, you need the technician that knows this is how it really works. The theory might be this, but that doesn't work in practice. Mm -hmm. What uh, is mechanical, petroleum, what, what types of engineering are you going to So we have mechanical and electrical. All right, terrific. What types, of, uh, what types of students are you looking for? You know, some of the best that we found so far are ones that go to Oklahoma Technology Centers, that have a program called Project Lead the Way, which is a nationwide program. And it's uh, th and they have it in engineering, computer science, and biomed. And those students are awesome. Um, my understanding is that Project Lead the Way was started about 25 or 30 years ago, and it was had a lot of industry input. So very practical. Those students all know what an Allen wrench is in high school. That's awesome. I haven't heard of that. Have you, Brad? No, I haven't. And and it kind of our connection with OBU and with Chuck and myself and and having a, a mutual uh, friend at OBU uh, that we we both know um, was myself talking with her about the opportunities Kim Ray has and more specifically Kyle Andrews, which is no uh, stranger to this podcast, but just talking about the work he's doing with uh, universities, not just local, but national in terms of training and, and talking about industry-specific and Kim Ray and the process and all that that ties into oil and gas production. So it kind of aids in the the approach that, that you're doing, Chuck, and, and helping uh, kind of bridge that, that knowledge gap early on in, in the engineering um, in the engineering studies. So we'll, we'll take all those engineers once they graduate, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, that's hopeful. Yeah. Let's go. Are there any maybe that are, are listening to this and aren't in one of those programs uh, and they think, well, I, you know, I've, I've worked a couple jobs and I, um, you know, I enjoy, you know, X, Y, Z subject. Um, is that someone that could, could fit into your program? It is. And this may not answer your question directly, but some of the best engineers that I've ever worked with grew up on a farm mm -hmm. because they know how things work. 
Now, they sometimes struggle with the theory, you know, with the higher level math, for example, but they make really good engineers. So if somebody is not great, let's say, you know, math is not their strength, you know, they can still get through it and, and turn out to be really good engineers. So the fact that you may or not may not be in Project Lead the Way or have had higher level math in high school, you know, if you like taking things apart and putting them back together, probably make a good engineer. All right, we're going we're gonna to shift to our recommendations part of the podcast. So this is where we recommend one thing, could be uh, specific to energy industry, could be totally out of left field. Well, I guess my main recommendation is, again, do what you're passionate about. But, but I will also say take opportunities when they come up. If, if there's a special assignment, uh, some folks would just say, nah, I don't really want to do that. But, you know, sometimes that could lead to something that you never know. For me, for sp- specifically, uh, John Zink asked me about 20 years ago if I would manage their training of our customers. And I said, well, I am an adjunct, but I'm not really an educator per se. I'm an engineer. And I said, can I get some more training? And they said, sure. So I, I got some, some training in that area, and it turned out that I loved it. You know, I, I didn't think I would. I mean, when I was growing up, I want to be an engineer, right? I don't want to be a teacher. But the more I did it, the more I liked it. And, you know, it's only because I said yes to that assignment. Otherwise, I would probably not have that opportunity. But by, by, I got some training in that area, Chuck Means. He went and got two advanced degrees from <laughs> University of Oklahoma yeah. and Oklahoma State. So. <laughs> no, that's terrific. I love that advice, too, to, to yeah, don't just kind of – willy-nilly learn something, like put your name on something and go get an accreditation of some sort, uh, whether it's an advanced degree or maybe just a certification. Uh, Breck, have you thought of one? Anything you'd recommend for folks? Uh, I mean, not being afraid of failure and understanding failure is the opportunity to learn, and that's where your lessons learned opportunity comes from. Uh, that's something that I feared, still do at times, is, is failure. I don't, I don't like to lose. I'm pretty competitive. I don't like to fail. I like to be good at what I'm doing. And that's the reality is that's not possible. Actually, uh, Coke Industries, one of their philosophies is what they call fail fast. So they want employees to take a risk, really the home runs you hit or when you take a risk. If you're just incrementally improving things, that's okay. But where you really can make, make a big hit is if you come up some, with something revolutionary. But what they're saying is, you know, we expect you to fail. If you're not failing, you're probably not taking enough risk. But uh, like Breck said, you know, it, it can be uh, fearful because, you know, what happens if I feel in a big way? Well, hopefully you're making good decisions, people giving you good advice, and you're keeping everybody up to speed. So it's not it would not come as a surprise. But, again, the company's expectation is people are going to fail. Otherwise, they're not pushing the envelope. That's right. It's a good word. Um, this will kind of be geared toward younger folks. So I'm going to throw in my recommendation is going to be for younger folks as well. I've been going through with my kids just some basic, basic financial things, you know, financial literacy and the importance of, of saving and, you know, conservative, smart investments and things like that and just how much that can pay off uh, as you get older. And so I just encourage you, uh, listener, to, to read a book on, on personal finance um, or an article or something, um, just to, to, to learn about it and learn about how, um, how budgeting works and the importance of that. So, yeah, those are the things you don't necessarily get taught in high school that you feel like, why, why aren't we teaching this in high school as long as well as how to get a mortgage, how to, how to shop for insurance, how to, you know, those, those simple things, I think, again, goes back to the practical aspect of not just engineering, but life. And I think that's, that's, that's wise. Yeah, for sure. All right. Denny, you got anything you want to endorse today? 
you don't have you don't have a, you don't have a mic. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we will link to the various resources that we've mentioned in today's show notes. We'll also link to OBU's engineering program and information on on Chuck and how to get a hold of him. And we'll catch you next time on stuff about oil and gas production. <laughs>